John chapter 5, picking up where we left off last week or last time where uh, Jesus had uh, spoken to the woman at the well there and we kind of got into this a little bit last week but we'll start in verse 1 of chapter 5 and uh, again uh, as I had made mention there were included in the gospel of John seven different uh, signs that Jesus did uh, to um, authenticate who he was, Um, beginning with changing the uh, water into wine, and then um, as we progress through uh, different ones. And this uh, is another one of these miraculous signs here. In chapter 5, it says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water when whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. Now, several interesting things about this. This is a very unique thing about an angel coming down and stirring up the water and that whoever's first into the water after the stirring of it would get healed. And uh, early, early in the church, in order to uh, deal with that, uh, certain segments of the church took their scissors and uh, cut that part out. Uh, you'll even look at the bottom of your uh, study Bibles and we'll read something that says um, <clears throat> that uh, the phrase in verse 3, waiting for the moving of the water, and then all of verse 4 are not in some manuscripts. Well, that's true. Uh, the Alexandrian text of the Greek New Testament didn't have it. And that's because you have to understand a little bit of history there. In AD 70, when uh, Jerusalem was sacked by the Romans, um, just ahead of all of that, the uh, 
the Pharisees, that segment of the religious leaders who uh, were still in Jerusalem, they fled to Alexandria, Egypt. And um, many of these guys had become believers in Jesus. However, they still held, held on to their um, Sadducean beliefs. Uh, they uh, didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in uh, the resurrection. They didn't believe in uh, the coming of Messiah. They Just a whole list of those things. So when they compiled their uh, Greek manuscript of the New Testament, everywhere that one of these things that they didn't believe in occurred, they would simply just delete that out. Well, um, fast forward a number of years, and and through uh, the change of things in history, that that group of priests and leaders eventually moved to Rome, and. <clears throat> You uh, go on down to uh, four or five hundred years ago, there was a, a text discovered uh, hidden away in the catacombs called the, the uh, Vaticanus. Uh, naturally, it's after the Vatican. But uh, this thing was just almost perfect condition. And along with it, they, uh, they found one of these Alexandrian texts. It was all, also in almost perfect condition. So the Greek scholars, they looked at it and said, Ah, older manuscript, therefore better. And they would say, older manuscript, therefore um, closer to the original time it has to be right and uh, we fast forward down to the 1900s and we have a proliferation of new versions of the bible all kinds uh, up until then basically it was in english it was king james now it may be a shock to some of you to find out that if you go to spanish or or any other language in the world, it's not King James. <laughs> King James is English. However, all over the world, all of their translations, including the King James, had as its source what is referred to as the Textus Receptus. And it's called that, if we translated that, that's called the received text, meaning the churches in the early days received it. And they, uh, they read it, and eventually it was canonized. And, and it uh, was the text that was accepted. The reason this Textus Vaticanus and the Textus Alexandrius were in perfect condition was because the early church rejected them. They, nobody read them. And so they, yeah, it's just like if you took a, a brand new Bible, set it on the shelf, never read it, and 
you know, several hundreds of years later, somebody gets it off, and they're like, oh, you know, look at it. and Well, naturally, it's going to be in good shape. It was never opened. It was never read. And anyway, there are 5,000 of those places. Sometimes it's just one word. Sometimes it's a part of a passage. Sometimes it's... Uh, a whole passage that they say was deleted uh, or is they deleted them and so people ask me why do you use the King James or the New King James uh, New American Standard why do you use those and you won't use the NIV after after all of the NIV and the the new ESV and all of that, they're easier to read, easier to understand. The reason why, as a teacher of the Word, I want to make sure I'm teaching the whole Word. And if you want to have one of these other versions, because they're easier to read, that's fine if you want to do that. The Word of God is constructed in such a way that it's kind of a, uh, like a military secret code. Uh, whenever they send these things in the military, they don't include the incomplete message. It's coded in such a way, but you get the gist of what it's saying, <clears throat> even though you can cut parts of it out. The Word of God is the Word of God. You can cut part of it out, and the gospel is still there all over the rest of it. And um, so you can read one of these other versions and you can maybe understand better. Maybe it makes it clear. But if you want to study the Word of God and do a word by word, verse by verse, passage by passage study, uh, you'll get you a King James, a New King James, um, one of those that is based upon the old Greek textus receptus. Uh, when I found this out, and I began reading in, in my footnotes in my study Bible, this verse not contained, it, it just infuriated me. It still does, um, because a lot of people will look at it and say, um, you know, there's something wrong with, with my Bible, because it, it has this stuff that wasn't in the old ones. Well, rest assured, if you see one of those footnotes, uh, if you could do a time travel and go back to the early days, it was in the original. And I point out something here in this particular verse. Um, they say that Waiting for the moving of the water, uh, there in verse 3, and then all of verse 4, is not in, shouldn't be included. But then I read on down, verse 7 is included, and it says, The sick man answered, and Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. The stirring of the water is still mentioned in the passage. And I point out, Jesus didn't correct him. I find that significant. Uh, 
that he could have said, ah, oh, you still believe in that old fairy tale? Well, all you guys just go home. And hey, by the way, you want to be healed? And, oh, yeah, yeah. And take up your bed, rise, go walking. And <clears throat> Jesus missed a really good opportunity to set the record straight. <laughs> and he didn't do it. And so I look at that and I think, well, probably the water was stirred by an angel, just like it says. And probably whoever got in it first got healed. And <clears throat> and you say, how did that happen? How? How? You know, I don't know. You don't. You know as much as I do, because this is all we have. That an angel came, and you say, you don't believe in that, do you? Yeah, I do. Because it says it in the Word. It says it in the Word. And I believe it just like it happened. And uh, Jesus uh, healed the fellow. And notice Jesus didn't address the issue the fellow had. He's God. He didn't have to. He just says, just take up your bed, rise, walk. And he in the in the doing it, he he was healed. And in case we miss the significance of the phrase there in verse nine, and that day was the Sabbath. The uh, religious Jews come to our rescue, and we can grasp the significance of what Jesus did. Because they throw a wall-eyed fit. Uh, they do not like it. The Jews, in verse 10, therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. You would have thought they would have said, I mean, these are the religious guys. They would have said, Hey, man, you're walking. What's the deal? What's What happened? And he could have responded and said, A man told me, take up his bed and walk and, and they could they could have said wow that you know go present yourself to the priest like the law says and and that you've been healed and and uh, offer the right sacrifice and you know and do all of that and and oh we're so happy for you and if they were really concerned they could have said you know it's not really lawful and according to our law to carry the just lay it down and go ahead and go and rejoice but no they're so caught up in their religious legalistic <clears throat> viewpoint or stance that they cared less about the guy being healed all they cared cared about was he's he's breaking our law. Uh, you see, carrying something, working like that, it was never Moses didn't write that down. You're just supposed to rest on the Sabbath, but he didn't write all of this down. And what Jesus is doing, he is showing uh, as the as the Son of God that he has authority over the Sabbath as well as all the other six days of the week. He has authority. And um, later he gets into this. 
And this really, really infuriates the Jews too. Well, this guy answered them in verse 11, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. I have no idea uh, if this illness or sickness this guy had was a result of sin, but it kind of gives you the idea that maybe it was. Because Jesus says, sin no more, meaning um, you need to change at this moment, lest something worse comes upon you. Well, this lets me know that there are some sins that we can do that can result in uh, an illness, Uh, something coming upon us or else Jesus wouldn't have said sin no more lest a worse thing come upon you so he Jesus said that that means that it is possible not necessarily always going to happen to all of us but it is possible and so we need to be aware of that the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. I never really got the full grasp of how legalistic Jewish people can be over these kind of things until we traveled to uh, Israel and we're just going about our business just like any old Gentile would do you know just a normal enjoy in the day and and we encountered different areas different you know these these looks that you can get yeah, you know, whenever your your children have messed up, done something, and you can give them that look, and well, the kid knows exactly. And I have to say, you remember when it happened to you, and your dad gave you that look. You know, you know. Well, that's the look they give you whenever you're doing something that you don't even know you're doing wrong, like pushing the button on the elevator. I didn't. We didn't know it, but the Jewish elevators are automated on the sabbath so you because pushing that button is work and so if you're going to the seventh floor and you get on uh, the door opens automatic it closes it goes to floor one opens closes two opens closes three it takes you forever if you're going up and jan and i we push the button Oh, you! Oh, the looks that we got! It was uh, don't push the button, don't do work, don't 
don't heal on the Sabbath. You broke our law. Uh, that's the way a legalistic person is. Uh, you broke my law. Did you know that a whole lot of what you find in the church today is uh, maybe it was begun out of good intentions, but there are so many uh, legalistic rules, regulations, laws, and all. And that's, <clears throat> that's why I really like uh, being a part of uh, uh, Calvary Chapel and uh, not not just Calvary, but other churches like Calvary, that, uh, hey, let's just all come together, you know, just, you don't have to dress up, you don't have to be somebody important, you don't have to, you, you don't even have to know all this stuff about the Bible, just come and learn the Word, and, and uh, enjoy being here, and actually, uh, enjoy being at church. Um, let all that other just fall away, fall away. Um, there were very few of these Sadducees, Pharisees, uh, the religious Jews that ever truly came to Jesus because of the hang-up of this type of thing that they had. Well, afterwards, uh, when Jesus found him, he said, Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. And you think, what? For healing someone? And they want to kill you? And and notice, this is not the non-believers out there. This is part of the religious community. And I have found that it is Today, oftentimes, the religious community that comes up against uh, people who want to do something for Jesus, it's the religious community that has the loudest cry. Um, heard of a fellow, uh, I don't know his name, he's on the internet and he's... <clears throat> teaching on there about the uh, pre-tribulation rapture of the church. And he's going on about what all is going to happen before the Antichrist comes and the Antichrist is going to, you know, do this and that. And, but before he comes to power, there will be the rapture of the church. And... He's, his ministry is kind of a prophetic ministry. And, and from what I know, he's pretty right on. And I don't know all the details, but he began to get death threats 
uh, via the email and texting him and those kind of things. And it turns out it's from people who say they are believers but don't believe in the rapture. They believe in some other something. And their hatred against this guy is so vehement that they threaten to kill him. Well, that's the religious people. But Jesus, he answers these guys, verse 17, and says, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. And once again, um, the significance of what Jesus said, we may just kind of pass over it, except the Jews, uh, we read their reaction. Therefore the Jews, in verse 18, sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And that's the perplexing thing to me. They were looking for their Messiah. They were looking for uh, that person to come. He's standing right in the, the midst of them. He's right there. And they know the scripture that says that when he comes, he will heal the lame, he'll give sight to the blind, he'll give hearing to the deaf, he, he will do all of these things. He's doing those things, and they want to kill him because he makes himself out to be equal with God the Father, which is exactly who the Messiah is. And they're, they're blinded to it. Well, Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. So uh, Jesus is basically saying, again, that he is equal with the Father in whatever I, I see the Father do. That's what I do. And he goes on explaining this. And then in this teaching that he does here, he points out several different uh, things, people, or groups that testify to the truth of the matter of who he is. And... uh, You've got to understand that to really get the gist of what all he's saying here. He's over and over again, he's saying, this is is another that testifies of me, John the Baptist. The scripture testifies of me. Moses testifies of me. My father testifies of me. And so that's what he's basically telling them, that it's, it's, it's there for you to see. Uh, speaking to these religious leaders, it's it's there if you'll just see it, uh, the testimony about who I am. Verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life 
to them, even though the Son, even so, the Son gives life to whom he will. So he's saying that the same things that God the Father does, the Son will do. And that's a testimony of who I am. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Now, when Jesus, on a different occasion, said that he came not into the world to condemn the world or judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And uh, so Jesus is, is not judging in his first coming. Uh, he's not judging the world. He's coming to save. But there is a time when he will judge. And when we're all, the, there, there are two judgments, main ones in heaven. There is the, the Bema seat of Christ, and then there is the great white throne. The Father presides over the great white throne. Jesus presides over the Bema seat. And the Bema seat, though, is not so much a judgment as it is a place of reward for those who know Jesus. The great white throne is not for those who believe, but it's judgment against those who reject Jesus. But even at that, Jesus, uh, from what I can gather reading all of that, Jesus is the one who says, Depart from me uh, and cast them into uh, outer darkness and uh, where the fire burns unquenchable and all. Uh, so when he says, um, God the Father has committed all judgment to the Son, that's future at, at this point. And he continues in verse. 23, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent, <clears throat> who sent him. Most assuredly, verse 24, and I like the old King James when it gets to that, where it says, verily, verily. And this is the reason I like that. In the old languages, when you wanted to emphasize something, and, you know, today we will put it in italics or underscored or bold print if we want to just, you know, bring your attention to something. In the old way of speaking and writing, they would repeat something. And so if it was just kind of sort of important, they'd say, verily I say to you, but if it is, carries more significance, they would repeat it, verily, verily. And so in the King James, when you read verily, verily, boy, really listen up. Well, they translated it from the New King James most assuredly. Another example of that very thing is in Isaiah chapter 6, where the angels are gathered around the throne and uh, and he's describing uh, that whole scene up there. And as he tells us what the angels are saying, they're saying, holy, 
Holy, holy. It repeats it three times, which is the most that you can repeat something. That means that's, that's the, the highest holy that you can get. That's, that's it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Uh, that's just another example of that ancient way of saying something or writing. So, most assuredly, I say to you that he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. If you know Jesus as your Savior, there was a point in your life that you heard the word and believed. And the reward for that is you have everlasting life. Meaning you'll, you, your, your body may die, but the real you will never die. And in addition to everlasting life, shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. I don't know about you, but I am so thankful, so thankful that I am not going to be judged, but that I have passed from death to life. Yes, I may die, I will die unless I'm raptured. I'm hoping for the rapture. I hope I'll live that long. Or maybe I should say, I hope the rapture comes that soon. <laughs> but um, one way or another, this body is going to get left behind. And when I get to heaven, I don't have to worry or concern myself about being judged. Because I judged myself a sinner at one point in my life. And as soon as I judge myself a sinner, I also recognize Jesus is the answer for dealing with that sin. He's the only one who can take care of it. And when I received him as my Savior, the Bible tells me that he took my sin and he was judged on the cross in my place. He took the penalty for my sin and yours and yours and yours. And so when I go to heaven, that is a no worry. I am not going to be judged. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to, and boy, am I glad. I mean... I, that's just one worry I don't have. I know Jesus. Now, Satan, he's the accuser. He's standing there. He still has access into heaven right now. He, he won't always. But he stands there and he accuses me to the Father. But Jesus is my advocate. That's just another way of saying my lawyer. Uh, the old way of saying it was he's my go-between, my goel. He's the one who stands between uh, Jesus. He stands between 
me and God the Father. That's why when we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. I come to, if you just pray to God the Father, I'm sure he's going to hear you because you are uh, his child. You are a son of God if you're born again. And you can go to the Father. But the appropriate way to go is to go in the name of Jesus. That's why oftentimes when I'm praying, I'll say, Father in heaven, I come to you in the name of Jesus. Immediately when I say that, I know I've got the Father's attention because I've come in the appropriate way. Now, traditionally, we conclude our prayer in Jesus' name, but I just kind of like to get the Father's attention right up front. (laughs) And uh, anyway, don't have to worry about being judged. Uh, That is so good. And we're just going to pick this up right where we're leaving off. We'll pick this up next Sunday right there, Uh, starting in verse 24 again. Uh, Just a final thought that I wanted to share with you. And this is a good place to share it. Um, there is in theology what is referred to as the kenosis uh, about Jesus. And that's just a Greek word meaning the emptying of oneself. And uh, what it refers to is when Jesus left heaven and to become one of us. He was born and uh, became a man. And we know that he's fully God and he's fully man, simultaneous. And uh, he, he lived a real life. He was born just like we are. He grew up just like we do. He got tired, he got hungry, he got thirsty. He, uh, he suffered those kind of things, endured them, I might say. But he suffered real pain on the cross. Uh, it was real. He actually died as far as his spirit leaving his body. All of that was the man part of Jesus. But then we read he healed and he could heal from long distance. He could uh, just speak and say, take up your bed, walk. He didn't even have to speak to the illness. He could cast out demons. He knew the thoughts of people. So he still had divine attributes. But at the same time, he emptied himself of some of his glory from heaven. One example of going back to that was on the Mount of Transfiguration. When, uh, I like to put it like this, that he just kind of relaxed and all glory broke out. <laughs> because 
there was the cloud and, and the bright and that's all we reference to glory and when we see Jesus in heaven again and yes uh, I will probably just like he showed Thomas the scars in his hands well there will be that as a testimony to what he has done for us but he will be in his glory uh, read the description of him in the opening verses of the book of Revelation. And uh, he's going to be quite different. He's the same, but different. He, he has gone back to what he was before. The kenosis, that whole thing is enveloped in, in the idea that he emptied himself of all of that or temporarily set it aside to come down here on the earth. Uh, there is a passage that actually talks about this in Philippians. If you want to turn there, uh, we'll read this. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. And Paul is the author of this, and he's, he's telling us, how we should be. But in the telling us of how we should be, he uses the example of how Jesus is. And so he says there in verse 5 of Philippians 2, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. So when he says, let this mind be in you, that means it is possible to have this kind of mindset. It's not something that's beyond our reach. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now that's the same thing that we're seeing in the passage in John that the uh, Jews pointed out so clear to us. We want to kill this guy because he's making himself out to be equal to God the Father. And so Paul is saying here that Jesus didn't consider it anything bad, that he's taking anything away from God in any way to be equal with God. And he shouldn't because Jesus is God. And... Verse 7, but made himself of no reputation as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Uh, he, he humbled himself. Um, it doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't a man of humility, but it means that in the sense of obeying the Father, he submitted to the will of the Father. He submitted to that. Remember in the garden, uh, just before he was arrested, that he was in agony so much over the, the going to the cross that he was sweating, and it was, there were drops of blood. And he cried out, Abba, Father, 
which is a term of endearment. And, you know, if there is any other way, if, if way back there in the council that we had in heaven before we got all this thing started, if, did we overlook something? Is there something? If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. This cup that I'm fixing to have to drink, this crucifixion and all the pain and everything. Because as a man, he, he knew what he was going to go through. It was going to hurt. Is there any other way? Comma. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He humbled himself to the obedience of his Father. And he's, and he's saying, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. And I read this and I think, oh, how many times I disobeyed my parents. How many times that in my pride, and basically that's what it is, pride, that I elevated myself above the desires of my parents, or in other cases, after I was grown, my employer, my boss, or, or whatever, or the speed laws. Huh. Nobody's looking. There's not a cop in 50 miles of here. <laughs> Jesus humbled himself. Wow, I, I look at that and I think that that if I could just I realize this is pretty huge, but if I could just do that, just get the mind of Christ. Well, we're going to see it more, see what the mind of Christ is more as we continue through. But I wanted to bring that out because uh, even though he is doing all the things he's doing and everything, he was doing it in submission to God the Father. Everything. Whatever I see the Father do, that's what I do. Whatever he tells me to do, that's what I, whatever he says, that's what I say. Pretty awesome. Yeah. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for for Jesus, our Savior. Thank you that we have your word here to read and study and learn more about him. And uh, we were only scratching the surface, Father. There's so many things that, just like John said, there, it, if it was all written down, the books uh, in the whole world can, couldn't contain it. Uh, your ways are so far above our ways and beyond our finding out. We thank you that you are a God that's like that. And help us that we can know our place and know where we should be in our position in, in relation to other people and in relation to you, Father. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.